0: available in The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee, the pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. I have preached the gospel of Jesus Christ in the various understandings and maturity that I had through the years. I've been a part of the church from the time I was a small child. And in all honesty, I have lived long enough and I have preached long enough to say to you, Now what I'm going to say. We have failed in the American church. We have not turned the tide of wickedness and darkness. Now granted, there is much false teaching. But that should not be a reason for the church's failure. I have watched in the 70s, as the church basically rejected the Jesus movement. I watched as the Holy Spirit withdrew from the church as the church growth movement came into being. I watched as mega churches for the first time began to develop on a business model. I watched as pastors became CEOs and coaches rather than fiery preachers of righteousness. As one brother said, I could go into a Methodist church, I could go into a Baptist church, I could go into almost any church in America in the 60s, and there was conviction of God for sin. There was righteousness being spoken of. All of that is but a faint memory. When I began pastoring in the 70s, the late 60s, everything was shifting and changing. I remember preaching on the streets of Georgetown, running a place called The Gate, which was a coffee house for university students and a free medical clinic for hippies. We were always jammed with people. The fire marshal would make us lock the door and not let anyone else in because there was such an eagerness to come and talk about Jesus. All of that is dissipated and gone. What's happening to us? We're being devoured by the world, by the flesh, and by the devil. When the church began to lose its holiness, we began to bring into the church the music of the world, the entertainment of the world, the ways of darkness. We began to focus, as Robert Schuler used to say, on the felt needs, sending out people to interview in the community and find out what the people there wanted in church. Well, we don't want the offering. We don't want the cross. We don't want any aspect of the traditional church we just want some sentimental entertainment we want programs for our children we want a great music program and we want short sermons okay not a problem we'll do it and the Holy Spirit left the church in America now you can argue with me but look at the evidence look at the wickedness in America Without the church, the world totally takes over, and we end up in a place of absolute hell, wickedness, and damnation. There are some parts of the world where the church is healthy and growing. China. Even some Arab Arab countries, many Muslims, are coming to Jesus and confessing him, But guess what? They're not doing it because of traditional evangelism. They're doing it because they're having visions and dreams from the Lord Jesus, from the Holy Spirit, and they're being convicted and they're turning from their darkness. Now, I'm saying this and it's negative and I recognize that. But I want to show you today another way And it's going to disappoint some of you because it's not the way of education. But get out your pencils and paper because you're going to want to take some notes today on some very solid biblical content that I believe that if you will grab a hold of and if we will get a hold of, we will see a dramatic change in our lives and in the church. And I'm going to tell you now I have experienced the dramatic change I'm going to speak of. And I know of others who have likewise experienced this. It is not something new. It is something very, very old. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as I unfold the word you've given today, I pray. O oh, Jesus, I pray, send your Holy Spirit well, Lord, today I'd like to hear a man or a woman say, I want to serve Jesus. I want to be converted. Pastor, can I be converted? What must I do to be saved? Lord, come now, please. I pray in your holy name. Amen. One of the blocks that stands directly in the way of the work of God in America is, for most of you, your job. Because as long as you have a job and you have a steady income, you can afford to live your life with or without an in-depth commitment to Jesus Christ. But take away that job. Take away that security of a regular paycheck. And things go south very quickly. And danger comes into our hearts and fear pumps into our veins. What are we going to do? And then there's an openness to begin to talk about Jesus. Now, I'm going to share a story with you from Acts of the Apostles. I believe, as my New Testament professor used to say to us, this book was not correctly named or titled. It should be Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because the book is full. This morning I read Experience of Conversion After Experience of Conversion. And what struck me in every story of conversion was the powerful moving of the Holy Spirit to bring about a supernatural work of grace in the life of that person. Now, the Apostle Paul and Silas are trying to determine where the Holy Spirit would have them go. And when they don't hear, they finally just set a course and begin to head toward their destination Immediately, the Holy Spirit stepped in and stopped them and said, No, do not go. They waited. They tried some other options. The Holy Spirit stopped them. Do you understand the glory of the Holy Spirit stepping in and saying to a pastor or to a church, Stop, no, don't go there. No, today we do whatever we have the money to do. The Apostle Paul waited. He then had a vision. And in this night vision, there appeared a man out of Macedonia. And he said, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Immediately, Paul said, That was the Holy Spirit. We're headed to Macedonia. They took ships. They began their journey. They traveled until they came to Philippi, the largest or chief city of that part of Macedonia. It was also a Roman colony. Now, they don't know exactly where to begin, so they begin where they always begin, in prayer. And they went to a place down by the river where people gathered to pray, so they went to pray also, And as they're praying, they meet a certain woman by the name of Lydia. She was a businesswoman. She sold uh, purple dye. Paul shared the gospel with her. She was converted. She opened her heart right then. She was transformed right then. She was not a be-back. She was transformed. She was converted right then. I'm going to talk more about what it means to be converted. But... Just very quickly, Jesus called it not being converted. He called it being born from above. Now, they baptized her, and then they went and began to stay at her home and her family's home. Now, as they were on their way again to prayer, I want you to notice the central part that prayer plays in this whole story they're on their way to pray and as they're on their way to pray a young woman begins to follow them and she's she's a a woman filled with a demonic spirit and she begins to cry out after them these men are the servants of the most high God which should show us the way of salvation everybody laughed she was discounting them. And Paul put up with this for a while and then finally turned and said, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And the spirit fled. Well, the people who, for whom she worked recognized that she had lost her power to do fortune-telling. They were very angry. And so they caught Paul and Silas. they took them before the magistrates, and the magistrates, because of all the demonstrations and all the confusion, and they stripped Paul and Silas of their clothes and commanded that they be beaten with rods. And they were, with many stripes, bloodying them, bruising them. And then they threw them into prison. And they charged the jailer to keep them safely. That means, jailer, if you don't keep them safely, we're going to take your life for theirs. They fully intended to execute Paul and Silas. So he put them in the inner prison. He put them in the stalks with their feet. They were miserable. They couldn't lay down. Their backs were bloody and beaten. And at midnight, Paul and Silas, are praying. They're not complaining. They're not upset about their treatment. They're honored to suffer for Jesus. So as they're sitting there praying, they break out into songs of praise and worship to Jesus. And the scriptures say in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, that all the prisoners, they were listening to them. They heard them. And as they're singing, there is suddenly a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison are shaken. The doors are all popped open, and everyone's bands of iron drop off of them. Well, the the jailer wakes up. He looks, and the prison doors are wide open, And he knows he's going to be shamefully executed for allowing the prisoners to escape. So he draws his sword to take his own life. And Paul cries out in a loud voice, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then the jailer calls for a light. He runs in, he comes trembling, and he falls down before Paul and Silas. And he brings them out, and he said, Sirs, What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? The answer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. The word believe in the Greek comes from pistis, which is faith. He's literally saying, have faith on the Lord Jesus. Believe on Jesus. Give yourself totally into Jesus' hands and trust him. And then it says something very interesting in verse 32. This is Acts of the Holy Spirit, chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 32. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord to all that were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And they were baptized, he and all of his, straight away. Instant conversion. They heard the message. They said, baptize us. We're ready. We belong to Jesus. Our lives are over. Then the jailer brought them into his house. He put food before them, and everyone rejoiced, believing in God with all the house. Instant conversion. Now, have you seen that? I've only seen that a couple of times in my life. This is not the way the church believes conversion happens. Oh, we run down for a little sinner's prayer and we're converted and we're... No, 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 no. Let me share with you what I think the Apostle Paul taught them. He said, And they spake unto him the word of the Lord. What was the word of the Lord? I want to share with you what Paul would consider to be the key portion of the word of the Lord. And this is what brought about the instant conversion that is spoken of. We find it in the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, it's very likely that these words are the words of a believing Gentile who has not yet received the instruction necessary to know he's just been brought out of his heathen state to believe in Jesus Christ. We might imagine from the manner in which God has magnified his mercy in in blotting out his sins, This jailer has just come out of a traumatic situation. His life has been spared. He's now believing on Jesus Christ. Now, will his continued transgressions do him hurt now that he has the favor of God? Is he allowed to continue in his sin? What will Paul say? You know, it's it's not unusual that a Gentile should emerge from the deepest darkness of his heart and entertain such thoughts. If you consider in the 20th century church, in the 21st century church, many people have appeared in Europe and America not merely asking such a question, shall we continue in sin, but defending a doctrine with all their might and asserting in the most unqualified and non-biblical manner that believers were under no obligation to keep the moral law of God. In fact, we've been taught that we cannot keep the moral law of God after we're converted by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're told that Christ died for us to impute righteousness to us, And when God looks at us, he doesn't see us. He just sees Jesus. That God cannot exact two payments for one debt. So if Jesus paid it all at the cross, what is there for me to do? In fact, the teaching is I can't do anything. And that when I die, my sin will be removed. So it would not be surprising if this jailer were to ask the question, what shall I what shall I do? Shall I continue in sin? Is grace that you've taught me about, is this going to abound? Am I free to continue to live my normal life? And Paul answers, no, God forbid. He is startled by the question. He is upset by the question. You know, the Apostle Paul, they tell us in biblical history was probably a, a short, balding, red-headed man with lots of fire. He's saying, God forbid! No! How shall we that are dead to sin live in it any longer? Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Come on, I'm going to baptize you now. You're going to die. See, every person who believes in the Christian faith and receives a baptism as proof that he believes the gospel has been he's been lifted up to righteousness. To be baptized into Jesus Christ is to receive the doctrine of Christ crucified and to receive the baptism as proof of the genuineness of that faith and the obligation to live according to its precepts It means a total change of life. And the change is instantaneous. See, when we say we're baptized into the death of Jesus, we're saying that just as Jesus Christ in his crucifixion died completely, so that no spark of the natural or animal life remained in his body, so those who profess his religion should be so completely separated and saved from sin that they have no more connection with it nor any more influence from it than a dead man has with his own departed spirit. Now if we continue reading listen to this for if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death We shall also, in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. He's saying our old man is crucified. You see, I'm a farmer as a child, and I would go out in the cornfield with my dad And we would when planting the smaller garden, not the big field where we use the tractor and the planter, but in the small garden. He would walk and he would open the soil with his shovel and I would throw in three kernels of corn. Now when a seed is planted in the earth, it appears as if the whole body perishes. Now all seeds are composed of two parts. The germ which contains the rudiments of the future plant and the lobes or the body of the seed. Now, as that body of the seed begins to decompose in the ground, it offers the first nourishment to the fine, delicate roots of the embryo plant and support it till it's capable of deriving nourishment from the common soil. The body dies that the germ may live. Now, how is the principle of life, which Jesus Christ has implanted in us, to be brought into full effect and full vigor and usefulness by the destruction of the body of sin, our old man, our wicked, corrupt, and fleshly self is to be crucified, to be as truly slain as Christ was crucified, that our souls may as truly be raised from the death of sin to a life of righteousness, as the body of Christ was raised from the, from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now, please, let me say this clearly. The reason the church in America has had no power, no power to change the direction of our culture is because Christians have been unwilling to die and be crucified with Christ. In other words, the germ, the seed germ, has never been allowed to grow because it can only be nourished as the old body dies. If the old body continues to contain the germ of the seed, The seed cannot grow and become the plant that it's supposed to become. And so we think conversion is a slow process. And we think that we need to just do self-improvement. We think we're on our way to heaven because we've intellectually agreed and we've done a little improvement on the flesh. There's no power. It's a form of godliness, but there's no power in it. The only way that power can come forth in your life is for you to be crucified with Christ. That is, for you to totally deny the flesh and walk in the spirit of the living God. That means you turn off everything that feeds your soul from the world. It means you lay your idols down at the foot of the cross. It means that there can be nothing standing between your heart and the heart of Jesus Christ. One of the great sadnesses of my heart is that I have invested thousands of hours in people's lives. And then they're offended by some foolishness and turn and walk away. And I know they're still walking in their flesh. They have told on themselves. Please understand me. I've not done any better than anyone else has done. I am no better than any other pastor. We, as pastors, are all guilty of preaching growing out of sin. You do not ever grow out of sin. You are crucified out of sin. You die to sin. Now please hear what I need to say to you. Jesus Christ took on him a body, a body in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was not sinful, but he took on the body, Romans 8.3. And he gave up that body to death, through which death alone and atonement was made for sin, which laid open for the vivifying power of the Holy Spirit to have the fullest access to and the most powerful operation in the human heart. Here the body of Christ dies that he may be quickening spirit to mankind. Our body of sin is destroyed by this quickening power of the Holy Spirit. And henceforth we should live unto him who died and rose again. We find that the old man used here in ephesians four twenty two in Colossians three nine is the same as the flesh with its affections and lusts spoken of in galatians five twenty four and the body of the sin of the flesh. This is what the Jewish writers used to refer to as the old Adam. The same which we mean by indwelling sin or the infection of our nature in consequence of the fall. From all which we may learn that the design of God is to counterwork and destroy the very spirit and soul of sin. We no longer serve it. We're no longer its slaves. Nor shall it be any more capable of performing its essential functions than a dead body can perform the functions of natural life. Is this your condition? Listen to Romans 6, verse 7. Now please, this is not Ray Greenley speaking. This is the Apostle Paul. Hear what he's saying. I tell you this, please, please, please. I have, along with all of you, not understood these things. And it's only been a gift of grace and the power of the Holy Spirit as he has unveiled these things to my eyes. Romans 6, verse 7. This is the King James Version. He that is dead is freed from sin. Literally. He that is dead is made righteous or is made innocent from sin or is freed or delivered from it. Now, doesn't that mean what plain English would indicate it should mean. That the man who has received Christ Jesus by faith and has been through believing made a partaker of the Holy Spirit has had his old man of evil propensities and lifestyle totally destroyed. So that he's not only made righteous freely from all of his sin, but wholly sanctified unto God. The context shows that this is the meaning Read the context. It's clear that a man who is converted, born again, died to sin, does not continue to live in it. Now, violence is done to the whole scope and design of what the Apostle teaches in Romans by the opinion that this text is proof that believers are not fully saved from their sin in this life because only he that is dead is freed from sin. So then death is our justifier and our deliverer. How unconscionable would that teaching be? And yet it is widely accepted by many of you. It is base. It is abomination before God. It is blocking the power of the Holy Spirit to move in his desire to rescue America from judgment. It is derogatory to the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the textbooks that I was taught from in seminary was written by a man by C.H. Dodd, Dr. Dodd. I want to read what I was taught in seminary. It breaks my heart now as I read it, and I recognize the profound, blocking influence it had for years of my ministry. He teaches that the word for destroyed should not be rendered as destroyed, even though in every other place in Scripture it is destroyed. But here Dr. Dodd, and his foolish wisdom, He believes that it should be translated enfeebled. Enfeebled. He believes, and I now quote from Dr. Dodd, the body of sin and believers is indeed an enfeebled, conquered, and deposed tyrant. And the stroke of death finishes its destruction. He's referring to physical death. So then the death of Christ and the influence of the Holy Spirit were only sufficient to depose and enfeeble the tyrant sin. But our death must come in to effect its total destruction. Thus our death is, at least partially, our Savior, and thus that which has an effect of sin, for sin entered into the world and death by sin becomes the means of finally destroying it. That is, the effect of a cause can become so powerful as to react upon that cause and produce its annihilation. The divinity and philosophy of this sediment, end quote, this philosophy, this teaching, that the blood of Jesus Christ does not have the power to make you truly clean. Dr. Dodd, in his Enfeebling the Power of Sin by the Crucifixion, denies the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. I find in Scripture that that person should be referred to as the Antichrist, because he takes from the power of Jesus Do you understand? In America, we have taken from the power of Jesus by his blood, and we have said, no, it's not until we die. So death is partially our Savior. I deny that. I refuse to believe that. So today it is said that believers do not cease from sin until they die can only say to you today that if you are choosing to be a believer in Jesus Christ like this jailer and by the way we don't even know his name he's just called the jailer if you like this jailer desire to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ if you will make proper use of your faith as taught by the apostle Paul you will not join the herd of transgressors and infidels. You will cease to sin. If the Christian religion can bring no other privileges than to enfeeble your sin, I would have to ask, are we not all fools? Are we not all fools? For if we do not have a Savior that saves, what kind of Savior do we have? I don't want to be saved by death. I want to be saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now when we read Romans 6, 9, Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For if he that died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God, likewise reckon ye also yourselves. That's reckon ye, you, individual, reckon yourself to be dead. sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Will you do that today? Believing in Christ Jesus, having a death unto sin and a life unto righteousness, we will sin no more. If we be risen indeed with Christ, we should seek the things above and set our affections on things above and not on the earth the man who walks in humble, loving, obedience, indwelling Christ. Sin no more has dominion over his soul any more than death over the immortal and glorified Savior, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Do you understand? there was instant conversion. There was instant conversion and change and being born from above and the old was gone and the new came and they lived a new life in Christ Jesus. It is this explosive power that we have cast out of the modern church. Revival happens when we embrace once more this glorious truth of instant salvation and instant crucifixion and dying to sin and be made new in Jesus Christ, this is the word of the living God. Verse 7, For he that is dead is freed from sin. Are you freed from sin? If not, you have not yet been converted. Pastor, are you suggesting that I need to examine whether or not I'm saved? Yes. Yes. Do you want to finally come to the judgment bar of God based on your modern American church beliefs and be told you have no entrance into the kingdom of heaven because you're still in rebellion against the mighty God of heaven? Do you want that? I don't want that. I don't want it for you either. I want my sin removed, all of it. And by God's grace, he's been doing that. And then he began working on character issues. And he exposes an area of my soul. And I quickly repent of that and say, Jesus, take it from me. It's all instant. It's now. It it doesn't take struggling with I want to share now some material just very briefly by Jim Kerwin in a book entitled The Rejected Blessing. Now, what I want to share with you was the standard belief of John and Charles Wesley. I want you to know that what I'm teaching from Scripture today is not only in Scripture, but it was believed by countless thousands in America. It was the predominant belief in the 18th century and the 19th century. It was believed by John and Charles Wesley. Out of that was born the Methodist Church. It also was believed by the Salvation Army, by the American Holiness Movement in the 19th century. It was believed by the Church of the Nazarene. It was believed by the Church of God, the Church of God in Christ, the Pentecostal Holiness Church, and many, many other denominations. Now, I want to give you a very concise overview as Jim writes this. Number one, God is holy, and he commands his people to be holy, by which he means we are to be set apart for him alone and to be made pure in heart and free from sin. Number two, God in his grace and power provides the means for us to obey this commandment to holiness, and the means is so thorough that it even destroys or eradicates inbred sin nature, the old man, the carnal nature. This is where the doctrine takes on its name entire sanctification. Sin is dealt with at the root. Number 3. While being free from the sin nature is important, it is in no way applying, implying instant maturity or towering spirituality it leaves the believer for the first time in his life with the ability to not sin, not to be confused with an inability to sin. Of course you can still go back. You can rebuild what the devil wants you to rebuild if you, sub- if you submit to him. This does not mean maturity. It doesn't mean you're all grown up doesn't mean you're not going to make mistakes. But you are free to not sin. The sign that you have been born again is that you are free not to sin. If you are swept away time after time by the same sin and you're constantly repenting, you have not been born from above. Now number four. Pastor Kerwin writes, The most important aspect of entire sanctification is that the heart's ruling passion is the love of God. The first and great commandment takes on another aspect altogether, that of the great fulfilled promise, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Number five. The scriptures depict sanctification as both a process and an event. That is to say, Christians by grace and obedience will grow in holiness. But there is a time when the soul encounters God and wrestles with this matter of inward purity. This is known as a crisis experience. That is a critical juncture in the spiritual life when the Holy Spirit desires to take the believer deeper and higher in the walk with Christ, convicts the believer of the need for inward purity, and when God grants that purity, the time and place are just as knowable and recordable as one's experience of initial salvation. Hence the word instantaneous was associated with the experience, for although there was a process of sanctification leading up to it, and an ongoing process after, the event there was an instant when God the Holy Spirit made the heart pure and sin-free. Now, where we're going to talk later and where I hold some disagreement is that I don't believe, and I've read Wesley carefully, his testimony is that this can all happen initially at the conversion of a soul. That it does not have to be a second work of grace. That the reason it's a second work of grace is that many will be transformed and changed into a new creature and then will not be taught properly and will slowly sink back and perhaps even begin to walk in impurity. And their soul is convicted, they grow sick of the inward temptations. And they recognize they don't want to spend the rest of their life battling with this inward struggle of the old man. And they finally come to Jesus and say, by your precious blood, would you make me pure? And he does. This is the basic description of sanctification as brought to us by John and Charles Wesley in the early Methodist church this is the message that went out across America with these wonderful circuit riding Methodist pastors it was the salvation that was preached from rustic pulpits and bush arbors and camp meetings with sanctification being a follow on message freedom from indwelling sin this message of Sanctification became a part of the American spiritual landscape. And it totally changed us as Americans. Now the question, are you as tired as I am of this modern church Are you hungry for Jesus today? Is there a part of your heart that is crying out to God and saying, Surely there must be more than this? Surely I must have a place of standing before you, God, where I no longer violate you? Do you care about how God feels? Do you want to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ where you are washed and made clean and pure and you don't go back to that same old, same old sin? You can have that right now. This is instantaneous work of the Holy Spirit. is the supernatural work of God. And the reason our day does not have the powerful movement of the Holy Spirit is because as a church we have banned him. We have kicked him out. We can do everything with our modern programming and our loudspeakers and our bands and our music and our entertainment and our children's programs. We can do everything we need to do. We'll educate our people. And we've kicked the Holy Spirit out of the deal. While in the book of Acts, I've read conversion story after conversion story and in every one they flowed out of prayer and the power, supernatural power, of the Holy Spirit. Now I recognize you're going to need to think and pray about what I've shared with you today. I'm going to go further tomorrow. What do you want to do right now? Do you want Jesus? Then I urge you to get alone with him and give him full authority and full power over your life and begin to cry aloud to Jesus and ask him to come by his Holy Spirit to you and transform you into a new creature in Christ Jesus and you stay there until the work's done. Oh, pastor, that might take a month. No, it won't. Not if you're honest with God. Not if you're willing to do real business with the Holy Spirit. Will you give up your pride? Will you give up your life? We follow Jesus? Almighty God, I plead your mercy now over every person listening. I am asked that men and women would be delivered now. That your Holy Spirit will go forth over every listener and transform and change them now into your likeness. Lord, convert your people. Give them new birth. Change them, Jesus, into your likeness cast the lies out. Release your Holy Spirit over America. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. We're in the last week of the month of July, and I'm asking, would you help us pay the radio bill? We're just over $1,000 short of being able to pay the radio bill for July. Would you go to our Webpage nationalprayerchapel.com nationalprayerchapel.com you'll find a donate button there you can donate with a credit card would you step forward and hilariously give if you want this message of holiness and Holy Spirit power to go forth in this city and you want the release of the Holy Spirit would you give or would you send a check cash or money at the prompting of the Holy Spirit to the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. My brother, my sister, I am tired, I am sick unto death of the wickedness of our lives in the modern American church, there must be a change. It can only come by the power of the Holy Spirit. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I love you. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'll talk to you soon
1: glow